looking at that old bucket, thinking, I like you. I like you because I can say what's on my mind. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Today, as part of our throwback series, we're going to be discussing All the Real Girls. Starring Paul Schneider, Zoe Deschanel, Shay Wiggum and Danny McBride. Directed by David Gordon Green. Once again in the world of twelve hundred feelings All in electric lights we see what we can Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Let's dip our nuts in whiskey and get the girls drunk. It's Gally in Glasgow. I'm kind of like a puzzle with hands when you think about it. It's Devlin in London. Put your hair back on and come on back. It's Matt in South Korea. I thought I was wearing my boxers. It's cool. It's Patrick from London. <laughs> oh, welcome back, guys. <laughs> welcome back. And uh, we're here doing a, uh, a throwback episode. So, Devlin, explain to us, why have you chosen all the real girls? Well, I feel like this is just a continuation of things that we did in real life uh, uh, many years ago when I made you all watch this, apparently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not me. That's my no? Time. Well, then finally, I've forced yet someone, <laughs> yet another person. I either ignored you originally film. or you didn't tell me. <laughs> Very likely. Um, uh, yeah, uh, this was a film that I... Um, I discovered uh, pre-film school days uh, when I was living back in uh, Darlington. I, I think it would have been around the time that I was I was studying with uh, mine and Matt's uh, um, teacher uh, Andy up at Darlington yeah. College, uh, who was kind of he was he was very good at uh, opening up your your references to, to, to films. I only studied with him for a year, but. Um, I think it was through him that I sort of started getting into Terrence Malick stuff. And then uh, he also recommended that if you're going to take this shit seriously, you should probably read some sort of actual serious film criticism. So I think I got into Sight and Sound magazine at that point. Uh, so I would have seen a review, I would have thought, for the uh, the home video slash DVD release of this one. Uh, it sounded interesting. For some reason, this was in stock in the Darlington blockbuster. I cannot <laughs> imagine that it got much play but uh it certainly did for me so i uh i I rented this out and took it home uh i was living back home at the time so uh uh, i came back with this this dvd i was at work i used to work in a a music shop back in darlington uh wanted to watch it uh the stepmom said oh you got you got film do you want you put it on down here we'll all watch it together (laughs) (laughs) that's right okay i'm 19 so i probably shouldn't be like a proper petulant dickhead and stomp upstairs and say, no, I want to watch it in my room. <laughs> also because they might have thought it was porn. Uh, so, <laughs> it is called All the Real Girls. And, mm, uh, yeah. So I, I watched it downstairs with them. And uh, I have, I mean, everyone's had experiences of watching awkward films with your parents. Uh, you know, usually it's just a, a, a terribly blocked, very Hollywoody sex scene that comes in uh, that sort of embarrasses everyone. But this was uh, a very different kind of embarrassment to sit through for two reasons. One, that I, I was really enjoying it and I could tell that they were not. <laughs> uh, this was not the film for them 
on a it must have been like an afternoon early evening it's a weird time to watch it. i remember it being daylight outside uh and also the um despite the fact that there is a sex scene in this film and it is uncomfortable to sit through with good reason um it was i think there was something about the kind of just the pang of like horrible recognition i was getting from it all um like it just felt kind of so um uh relatable uh relatable to the point that i was like a little like embarrassed uh and so I, we we finished the the very uncomfortable screening of it and um that night i watched it again uh straight away uh and then again the next day before i returned it i was really hooked on it um mm. really struck a chord with me so yeah that's that's why this film it was a it was a really really big very kind of uh left a really really big impression on me and i think when i was at film school were i to direct something i would imagine it would have come out like the worst kind of horrendous it's just pretentious horseshit that i could come up with which would have been largely influenced by this you know um uh which uh, you know it's a style of filmmaking that we're going to get into i would imagine a lot but um uh yeah well uh, i'll go to you gals first because i i i do know definitely when you first saw this film i do remember watching this because you forced me to watch it and you made me watch uh david gordon green's undertow as well and i remember watching that one vividly remember watching that one because jamie bell at that point was well he was billy elliott wasn't he so um i i knew him um but i i'll be honest with you devs re-watching it this week i had very little memory of this one it didn't it didn't quite sit sit in there in the back of the mind so um you can take it as me watching this with fresh eyes this week uh, so my um my views on this were are coming from a a kind of yeah an an innocent place i haven't got much bias to it what about you matt because i know that devlin uh, tried to hawk this one on you too <laughs> he did uh i think it was around 2007 which would make it after uni uh correct me if i'm wrong but i think it was the darlington arts center era yes uh, with the cheesy chips and uh you know all that uh Dev <laughs> knows what i'm on about I do. <laughs> we should we explain that i don't know we used well, to go for, we used to go sit and eat cheesy chips in the darlington arts center canteen like every week and chat film basically yeah, an attempt to make one that didn't actually turn into anything. We were trying to help someone uh, get their film off the ground, but um, it, it just never really, never really happened. It was kind of an unusual situation. It's kind of, <laughs> kind of a, a strange, a strange it time was, in my wasn't life. It? <laughs> I, I was living at home too at that time. It was before I made my big move, and uh, yeah, it was quite, quite an interesting time. But I, when, when I borrowed the DVD, I, I did watch it, but I, I must have found it quite forgettable because I, I couldn't recall anything about it at all maybe the, the wow. similar thing as as Gally, two two. <laughs> the only thing i remember was uh zoe de chanel because she's gone on to i mean, we can talk about her later but um she's gone on to be you know quite prominent well, she's in, zoe de chanel, isn't she? yeah we everyone knows her so um yeah with my sandwiches still in my lunchbox i'm gonna listen a lot today i'm gonna learn about why you love it so much because you clearly do the one thing i could relate to on on your introduction there is that it strikes a personal chord and it, it does with me as well perhaps too much so it, it actually uh yeah it it played as sort of sort of uh biographical at times it was very unusual to, mm. to watch but um 
revisiting it was kind of strange. Uh, it brought back a lot of memories and a lot of feelings. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll reserve a bit of it, but I'm I'm really interested in in hearing why you love it so much and uh, learning more about it, really, and more about David Gordon Green. Uh, so I'll, I'll pass it over to Patrick. How about you? Well, I'm immediately feeling like I'm the lesser friend of Dublin here, seeing as he's never <laughs> asked me to watch the film before. So I'm feeling quite hurt, Dublin. And, um, you know, uh, that's fine. That's fine. I'm coming to terms with that. Uh, I, I hadn't seen it, as I said before. I hadn't actually heard of it, Dublin. I heard oh, of David yeah. Gordon, um, the director, uh, but mainly I'm looking at his credits. I'd only seen Pineapple Express. That's the only film right. I've seen of his. Uh, I watched Your Highness the other night. Just oh. The only one how did, really how did available that go? for me to watch <laughs> online. Uh, yeah, I thought it was dog shit. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> not Natalie Portman can even say that. Uh, I, I wanted to watch Halloween and I never got around to it. But I think it feels like a lot of, more of his catalogue is lesser known stuff. I, I'm, I do really want to see his debut film and I've just, I couldn't find it. I couldn't. It's on Prime, Patrick. Oh, it is currently me. available for streaming on Amazon Prime. I didn't yep. look hard enough. I really want to watch that next because from everything I read, that sounds like a really good film. I think uh, you would like it. I was I was very interested in this episode because I want, I want to hear. It might be, I was preparing for something really an emotional response from one of us, uh, which I was quite looking forward to. I had a feeling that this was that film for you, Devlin. So that's what I'm looking forward to tonight. Yeah, no, well put, Patrick. I'm I'm the same. I'm intrigued because normally Heart of Stone devils. Um, <laughs> he might he might very well capitulate on this one. Um, I, I tell you what, before we get into the uh, the nuts and bolts of the film, um, we've made mention of uh, the director David Gordon Green, and well, what I. I didn't realise what a uh, what a disparate filmography uh, he's he's got. I mean, you mentioned Your Highness, Patrick. I will second its shit, and I would I would actually say <laughs> it's it's worthless as well. Like it was such a waste of time. I, I I couldn't actually fathom how the director of this film had made that. Mm. Uh, it just it completely bowled me mm. over. So I'm intrigued to know. Uh, your theories uh, on that one on Devlin. I, I've certainly got a couple of ideas because he pivoted into studio comedy um, for yeah. a three or four film run, but it was I found it utterly baffling. But yeah, David Gordon Green, I mean, an indie darling. George Washington, his first film, I watched it this week, um, and I think it depends how you sit with all the real girls, but one of the things I will say is it definitely demonstrates in the second feature uh, a sort of progression, uh, almost like a demonstration of if you give me more, I can deliver more. You know, professional actors and increased budget, mm-hmm. etc. Uh, and the cinematography, I think, is stepped up in this film from George Washington. But the, you know, how we were all at film school, we all wanted to develop our, our kind of our calling card films, and it felt like George Washington was a calling card film and uh, and it really I think it was wasn't it Devlin you know obviously it's yeah. his first feature but that was, it's his, that was um so him and, and the crew 
of George Washington basically carried straight over into all the real girls. And he, he stuck with, with a large number of those crew members throughout the whole of his career, really. He, he, uh, he had a, a bunch of short films, uh, most of which are student shorts. So you don't really see them. The, there was a, a short called Physical Pinball, which is available on the George Washington DVD. I can't believe he made the film at 24. It's insane, right? Like, mm. uh, the, the, the time it came out as well, sort of 2000. So you're thinking like, uh, American indie cinema is really paying attention to a lot of young filmmakers who sort of emerged from the nineties onwards. And, um, the, the vast majority of them, um, would have maybe more of a, a hook or, uh, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's difficult to sort of pin down what generation he belongs to really of directors and um and in age he's probably not that much uh younger than say a paul thomas anderson who also started like out of the gates with with a lot of praise and a a kind of a really interesting and unique style of filmmaking and um they share a couple of traits i guess and that um they're both somewhat influenced by robert altman but they seem to take quite different things from altman cinema green team uh, tends to get the the looseness and the overlapping dialogue and the naturalism and maybe some of the weirdness of something like three women certainly early paul thomas anderson tends to lean more towards the kind of shortcuts kind of era the, the climactic uh, event that ties things together yeah well i had devlin in my notes like i saw this as kind of a mumblecore film I, okay I know whether you would agree with that it was um, that kind of naturalistic indie film at the time i think it this film there was a lot of uh improvisation and finding uh, uh, finding not just words or lines or delivery Mm -hmm. but in some cases finding entire scenes Mm -hmm. just through kind of throwing it back and forth um which which is definitely a mumblecore uh thing you can kind of yeah, that's that's interesting because a lot of that stuff came just a little after this. But also, I, I imagine it would help with that. What you were saying there, that Paul Schneider and Green, they're they're quite close, right? Because Schneider was in uh, George Washington as well, and he did he write the story for this? He did, yeah, yeah. He's got a story by credit. But um, uh, what I found really interesting, I used to watch the director's commentary for for these films because that's what we used to do when we were at film school and we had way too much time on our hands but also i I do still love a director's commentary the way they talk about the creation of all of these films sounds like an improv not just between you know the the usual kind of members of the the crew that you would imagine so you know the the director and the actors screen shopping uh workshopping things and maybe a screenwriter being involved but um, for this film, they, uh, so the cinematographer, uh, Tim Orr, uh, who was only 30 when he shot, um, uh, George Washington. So he was only around 32 when he shot this. There was the, uh, the sound designers, the, um, the editors, uh, I think it's Stephen Gonzalez and Zine Baker, I think were their names, uh, who again have kind of stuck with them throughout. There's, uh, uh kind of uh richard wright the production designer so all these all these guys were um uh, what i found interesting was was how often they name dropped them throughout the the director's commentary not because of the things they were doing with with their technical role but that basically they would just get in their cars and they would just drive around or they would drive to shows together uh, they would go and see a lot of the bands that would end up on the soundtrack as well. So in, when you said, gals, that they, 
the music in these films is really important. That's because when they were creating these things, the, the opening of the film is um, uh, All These Vicious Dogs by Will Oldham. And they would say that uh, Will Oldham is from somewhere in the vicinity of North Carolina. I'm not entirely certain where, where he is from specifically, but I know that it would be somewhere in that kind of uh, sort of eastern seaboard, deep south area. And they would drive to shows to go and see him play. And they would be talking about this film constantly, like for, I think for like years, basically once they'd concluded George Washington, they started workshopping this. And there are lines in the film, which are written by uh, crew members. The boom operator came up with the line in the bar later where we see Paul Schneider very drunk. Um, the exact phrasing of the line, um, did you ever see a mistake in nature? Mm. There was a boom operator coming up with that. Wow. Uh, which it's, 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 it's interesting to see how many kind of hands can, can come in and, and, and help shape a, a film like this. Also, he em- embellishes it, right? With, with, with the, uh, the, the story of the birds. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Crashing into the, which, so that would always, that, that would feel deliberate to me. That would feel like it was something that was in the script. So that's, in, that's incredible mm. to know that the boom, the boom mic guy was like, Actually, I'll just uh, just put this down a second. Yeah. I've got an idea. But they were they were yeah seriously they, they were out blocking the scene and it's like you know he they were they were struggling with with how it's, how to get out of that scene and so he, he said mm. he reworded the sentence for him just on set like that leads me to ask a question then yes it's burning in the back of my brain right how how can David Gordon Green and this crew how do you make your highness then I mean what's the theory because. <laughs> I've got to say, comedy is subjective, but my God, was that lacking in laughs. I mean, I, I was I was actually bowled over with how bad it was. I just thought, how has this even got through the studio system as a script? Right. There was um, not a single laugh to be had in, in the entire film. Surely he yeah. went with Danny McBride, right? Because he's with him here, and he's, he's done Eastbound and Down. He's done Parks and... Is he done Parks and Rec? Have I got the right? Uh, Paul Schneider was in the first... Uh, he was. First yeah. season and a half of Parks and Rec, but then they kind of retooled the show and kind of retooled him right out of it, unfortunately for him. So he's got these connections with these guys, right? So, like, and... Was Pineapple Express was before? Um... It was. That was that was kind of the breakthrough, really. Some, so after George Washington... George Washington was, was successful uh, to an extent. In that, it, it, like you say, it was a calling card. He was uh, Roger Ebert was was an immediate and very vocal supporter of his. Um, the the very, and I think Terence Malick's name is probably going to come up a couple of times. This will be the first time I mention it. Terence Malick was was clearly a, a visual influence and an influence in in other ways on on uh, the first film especially, and then throughout the career to to uh, kind of variable extents um he was also uh, uh um a, a kind of a champion he ended up uh, producing his third film um, oh, wow. undertow mm. um i think lisa muscat who was a producer on this had worked with terence malick as well so there's um he very early kind of made a a bit of a splash with with george washington it was never going to break through it wasn't a particularly huge film but it, it was uh, uh put out on the criterion collection Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is uh, which is always a a, a mark of, of you know the, the kind of renown that you need if you want to continue to have a, a at least an art house film career. And then all the real girls was at the we mentioned Zoe Deschanel, but at the time she was she was an established Hollywood 
actress, but she wasn't really the Zoe Deschanel that she later became. She well, kind of... it's the same year as Elf, so I mean, she was on the rise um, that year. Yes, that, that was released yeah. the same year, so right, right. It, it was kind of maybe breakout year for her. Uh, he went on to make Undertow, and then from there he made a film called Snow Angels, which I'm a uh, I really liked, um, but it basically just di- disappeared without a trace. It was a Warner Brothers film, and um, it was based on a novel, so it was kind of the first time that he'd he'd branched out from generating his own material to see whether he could come up with something that was you know not at all hollywood but maybe a little bit more palatable it was mm. uh kind of a i guess if you wanted to be unkind you could call it like a miserableist indie dramedy or drama i guess with some vaguely comedic elements uh, uh i thought it was better than that but it fits alongside a film like in the bedroom the todd field movie or something like that um but uh, disappeared without a trace. Had absolutely no UK distribution. I had to buy the DVD from Poland, uh, where it's <laughs> oh, called wow. uh, Snezny Andele. <laughs> Pronounce that. <laughs> <laughs> if that's how it's pronounced. I'm I'm so sorry to the entire country of Poland. That it arrived. Well, we we that. do have Polish listeners, Devlin. I so know. Butchered it. Please, 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 please do correct me. I I I, I need to learn. Um, and uh, Snow Angels was a. It's like I say, it was a studio film, but not a breakthrough and and whether it was ever going to be i don't know but it as you, as you mentioned that Danny McBride ended up in in this film plays a character called Bustass and uh, Danny McBride had never acted before and he was just their classmate from film school who was huh. from a year below them and he, they they thought he was funny they also said that he was a tremendously talented uh, director in film school he was like Paul Schneider's favorite director of of the film school crop and they just brought him into this and uh and lo and behold, he, he becomes, you know, he, he and uh, other guys within the kind of comedy North Carolina film school milieu. So there's Ben Best, who's his co-writer and uh, director called Jody Hill. Uh, they all went off and kind of created a bunch of really successful comedies. Uh, the Foot Fist Way did all right. And then after that, you know, um, Danny McBride's appearing in Tropic Thunder and stuff. So. <laughs> Uh, so he breaks out, and then uh, um, it's uh, it was an Apatow production, right? Um, Pineapple Express. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, which did you guys see that at the time it came out? I did. I was that was one of the first ones I saw, as far as David Gordon Green was concerned. I saw the one that you lent me, obviously, uh, all the real girls, and then uh, Pineapple Express or Undertow was maybe Undertow was second in the old love film. Days, oh, okay, yeah. Um, which I, I I don't remember much about, but I remember not liking Jamie Bell. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot lot going round about Jamie Bell as far as he's from Billingham, which is quite close to us. There used to be a, a skating rink in Billingham where we used to go, and uh, whoever went to school with him said that he completely lost touch with everything. He had this kind of a lister attitude after a while he got teased a lot about billy elliot i think and he had to rebel against the people who were teasing him and he kind of acted quite aloof as far as did he not learn from the film billy elliot matt like that's (laughs) the whole point of the film yeah well i I, so i saw those two and uh and then of course halloween was a big one um which i've seen twice now once at the pictures when it came out here in korea on halloween night as the climax of our horror october that we did uh, we did John Carpenter's Halloween and then we did the David Gordon Green one the next night and we had a lot of fun. Uh, there was a few issues on the second viewing. I watched it on Netflix the other day 
and uh, like the logistics of it and there's a lot of convenient happenstances as far as <laughs> the plot the plot goes just to get everything where it needs to be but I, I kind of understand why they did it but it was an enjoyable Myers kill fest romp unlike in other slashes where they would be pure archetypes with defined by costume or hair color he tries to give them a little bit of inflection of character which mm. is what I appreciate. Yeah, there's when I there's saw some it. injections of, of, of kind of off kilter weird humor that kind of barely even registers as humor at times, or it's, it's, it's very kind of strange. I wouldn't even call it dry. It's very strange. Like the, um, it did the, echo to, to this. The, it's like a, a non humor. It's, it's very yeah. strange, but it, it felt the same tonally as, as this. Which, yeah, I, I like that about it. And, uh, I mean, if you think like terrible, terrible films like Halloween five, the, mm-hmm. the god awful attempts to put like, crowbarred humor into something like that and uh whereas at least in this it's you know it's somebody in control of of what they're doing whether or not you are on board with it is kind of is 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 up to the viewer i've got to say dev i was definitely prepared for a bit of stoner stuff in this film because my association is pineapple express and your highness i was waiting for those danny mcbride I, i made aspersions on it and that that was what I associate the Gorgony with, and now I'm, mm. now you're educating me, sir. Well, it's mm. it's strange that it's it's like you say. Uh, uh, when you ask, like, how does he end up making your highness? I guess it's just that I don't know how you go from Snow Angels to Pineapple Express in a year because uh, I watched Snow Angels recently. I did a little bit of a mini marathon to get up to this point, sort of refresh on on some of these films I hadn't seen in a couple of years. And Snow Angels is a very um, mature and uh, I might say very kind of dark and Sam Rockwell has a kind of great performance as a, um, an alcoholic, ex-alcoholic, recovering alcoholic father who's trying to kind of turn his life around with a very, very, very fucked up style of Christianity. And it's, uh, and then within a year he's made Pineapple Express, which I actually really remember liking a lot. Like it's, there's a lot in it, which feels quite easygoing and, and sweet. And the 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 kind of bursts of kind of comedic violence in it, uh, they're not anywhere in the league of something like um, like Edgar Wright's best stuff. But there's they have a lot of fun with action movie cliches. It's and and Your Highness is none of that. It is fucking dreadful. <laughs> I couldn't get. I, I couldn't understand what I was watching. No, I couldn't get out. Like, just like Charles Dance. Oh, okay, great. I'm in good hands here. There's great cast. Damien Lewis. What the fuck happened? Toby Jones with no cock. For God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> the normal way of it, and I think about the Farrelly brothers, or in particular the one Farrelly brother who decided to go all cred and make Green Book. Do we know which one it is? Was it Peter? No. No, just one of them. I don't know. <laughs> the brothers, they're inseparable. Um, but no, but my, my point being is that normally, and I think about like Jim Carrey, when, when he comes out, he explodes onto the scene, comic actor, and then they get kind of like, they almost resent the idea that, oh no, I'm more, I'm more than just a comedian. I can do drama. And then you normally see them pivot into more dramatic roles. It's yeah. so strange to watch it the other way around. So, you know, David Gordon <laughs> Green is doing this really, yeah almost like Wordsworth or T.S. Eliot poetic filmmaking. And then he pivots into stoner comedy. It just, it felt like, I think that might have also been the problem with Your Highness was that I watched all the real girls the night before and then I watched Your Highness and it just, 
it threw me for sex. I mean, God knows how, um, yeah, how 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 you must have felt watching it for the first time as a fan of his. But you, mm. you know, normally with directors, they're a bit like actors, aren't they? You you find your niche, and then you can sell yourself to studios and mm. audiences as well. It's a David Gordon Green film. I know exactly what I'm going to get. There we go. We have an individual though who's almost rallied against that. He's now made a, a successful horror film um, and a reinvigoration of the yeah. Halloween with uh, two more to sequels. come. With two more mm-hmm. to go, he he's done stoner comedies and he's played the field in the indie crowd. I mean, it's just a strange career. Um, some hits, some misses, but it's just I. I it's surprising that he was able to still make films after Your Highness. Honestly, it was that bad. Um, it's quite it nice though that it's varied, you know, rather than yeah. sticking with the same time with the same brush. It's, it's a good thing. Well, I guess um, since we mentioned Terence Malick um, earlier, or I did at least, that um, the early stuff was you could you could draw some parallels, especially with uh, with with um, oddly you can draw parallels really with Terence Malick's later stuff. The, the, with mm. um, with David Gordon Green, I don't I don't see too much of the likes of Badlands. I thought that because I've only really got into Badlands mm. and uh, Days of Heaven and Thin Red Line, like the, the first three did. Yes, I guess so. That the later work I'm not too familiar with, so I couldn't I couldn't tie that together at all. So it's interesting you say that. It's it's unusual because he when he came out, people were were saying that oh this could be another Terence Malick, I guess just because maybe Thin Red Line was still in people's heads, and that was probably the first time that Terence Malick had started pushing the the style of filmmaking that he later became kind of known for, started pushing it to more abstract places. So you know scenes would just kind of begin and end, and you would drift away from characters for a really long time. And um, but Terence Malick has in in at least in very recent years kind of been a victim of that to an extent although i doubt anyone's making him do it he just seems to have suddenly become really prolific and i went from being a a, a really really huge fan of his work to just being honestly a bit embarrassed to sit through some of them because i don't know if you guys have seen have you seen the one where ben, Aff- ben affleck gets really sad at the ground uh <laughs> so it was oh god to the wonder was uh that was the the ben affleck one I saw Song to Song recently. I, That's yeah, another one. But... Yeah, I did. Uh, me and uh, me and my partner got Song to Song because we thought well, maybe this will be, you know, she's uh, uh, she quite likes a lot of um, like indie music stuff, and I think the fact that it was mm. set at South by Southwest, she kind oh, of yeah. thought would appeal to her. And mm. I, I think in that maybe it would be a, a bit of a comeback for Terence Malick. And Jesus, that was a uh, <laughs> yeah, that all was, over the shop. That was an evening. Well, we've teased it enough, gents. Devlin. Let's talk about all the real girls. Have you got a plot summary for all the real girls? I I do. I do. A small town Lothario, Paul, finds himself falling for his best friend and top drinking buddy Tip's younger sister, Noelle, upon her return from boarding school. As their relationship progresses hesitantly among the sleepy, run-down factories of the rural south, Paul's reputation among the other girls in town and his one-time confident tips awareness of his worst tendencies start to buffet their burgeoning affair. Yeah, that's about it. And I can totally understand now why 19-year-old Devlin, sex Lothario himself, would be slightly embarrassed when watching this with your parents. (laughs) (laughs) Man about town, Can we insert a a Nelson-style laugh for that, please? (laughs) (laughs) All the lasses of her worth. 
They've all got oh. a tale to tell about Devlin, mostly. Oh, that long hair, that long locked ginger yeah. that, that ruined our lives. <laughs> he looked so he looked so hot in his spa uniform. <laughs> <laughs> this opening scene. Now this is this is going to be your gateway, whether or not you're going to enjoy or or completely not get on board with all the real girls. We're we're literally thrown into the midst of a relationship with two characters that we we don't know in a place that we don't know, and I was utterly utterly charmed. Uh, I thought it was wonderful. I thought it was so so great the way that they were playing off each other and the dynamic. And what I also enjoyed as well is watching it a second time this week. Is everything is foreshadowed in this first interaction? Why haven't you ever kissed me? I'm scared. I'm scared that when when Tip asked me if I ever kissed you, I'd have to say yep. That scares you. And Tip is my best friend. I don't want to mess with that. I don't want to be with somebody that's scared to be with me. Well, mostly I don't want to be like, like when I kissed other girls. Well, why don't you kiss me right there? I don't have to be like the other girls. Okay, right here. Where? Right there. So my question to you is, was this deliberate, as in this was written by David Gordon Green and this opening scene was always going to be the opening scene, mm-hmm. or was it something that they, they maybe did in the edit? Because obviously you don't normally start your film in a rom- in a not to say this is a romantic comedy, but in a love story yeah. where the two characters are at the just meeting well, immediately. Just at the pre- they're just at the precipice of, mm. you know, you know the, the early stages of uh, of their they're loving. Yeah. yeah, it's a really interesting place to to pick them up. Um, no, it, mm. it wasn't supposed to be the opening of the film originally. Um, actually, the uh, jumping ahead because I, I don't feel like linear plot is really going to be something we need to concern ourselves with in this film. We can jump around as much as we like. Um, the last scene in the film was at one point the opening of the film. We would meet. Oh no! We met no. Paul in the river with the dog. That was that was the uh-huh. that was the opening of the film, and then then there was uh, there were other sequences which were like preamble and, and maybe the the tentative coming together of Paul and Noel. But uh, uh, I agree. I think it's a I think it's a great um, a great point to pick them up, and and yeah, uh, a scene that that plays out completely in one static shot with uh, the kind of strains of a very melancholy and very wonderful Will Oldham song kind of ringing out and you've got the, yeah, it's, it's all, it's all there. Um, Well, that first shot is really interesting. There's uh, I kind of knew that we had something good photographically in store from the first shot. You kind of have the tree behind her and kind of rubble behind him. And it's kind of very thoughtfully framed. Somebody's really put some uh, effort into um, what they're doing it's it's a very un it, very honest uncut 
intimate kind of um, genuine moment uh, right at the beginning with with a very long kiss that's very much longer than anything you'd usually see <laughs> very lingering and uh, but it felt very real and and the film contains a lot of these real tender moments and that was one of my uh, one of my positive things that I could that I could take from it I really like the opening. Um, I was mm. quite taken aback by it because I quite like the challenge of like, hold on, right, we're in the middle of a relationship, but they haven't kissed. And you immediately start to wonder why I, I did find it was quite an affecting performance from both of them that they're, they're both quite, it, it's weird, Paul Schneider's performance, because there's a lot of immaturity and clumsiness at the beginning when mm. I, I love the moment when he kisses her hand and he looks around because mm. he's almost quite too timid and he, he tells her you know she asks him why why haven't you kissed me yet and you understand that well maybe they've been seeing each other for a while and it's a it's a really intriguing really kind of sweet start that i don't know you don't usually start a film that way do you you know bang in the middle of a relationship with a with a question and then to have some brutal honesty and something quite intimate and real that I, I I was very intrigued from the start. I thought it was quite a bold opening from, uh, but maybe understand that I'm watching a film about a relationship that's going to be quite somber, uh, and um, that tone of real that Matt was speaking about. You know, it, f- it feels quite very natural here. I'm totally with Patrick on Paul Snyder's performance. However, I don't buy him as Lothario. <laughs> Maybe that's yes, thank be... you. That was my next point, though. That, yeah. that leads I me never, into... I never, I never ever buy him, and it's it's partly down to the words that are coming out of his mouth because he's, he's like you said, he's acting so timid and clumsy around here. I get it. If she's the love of your life, yeah. they're gonna they're gonna bring down the walls. Um, however, I just yeah. never buy the quiet confidence that he's supposed to have. I started to think though, what? How can that be? And I was trying to look at the tone of the film, and there's. Something almost like uh, I feel like David Gordon Green's looking back on memory in this film, and it's Schneider almost looking back. There's a few flashbacks to other relationships, and I did think like, hold on, this guy shagged twenty six girls. I don't get it. Like mm. he doesn't strike me as what someone girls would want here. But is is I started to wonder is that the point that she has made him like this because. He's able to sleep with anyone who wants to sleep with him and get away with it, drunk at a bar or whatever. We don't know what the past is or how he's achieved it. But then this one girl, Zoe Deschanel, uh, sorry, Noel, ha- yeah. has made him different. Has made him. We, he, yeah, he does say that to his uncle, like later on after it's all kind of inevitably falling apart. He said, uh, "All these girls that I was with, and then." this this virgin comes in yeah. and it completely messes with my head and stuff and hmm. you do get little... yeah, from from the male perspective that's the tragedy of it isn't it he, the, yeah. the one girl that that changes him is the one that uh, does the same thing to him that he's done to yes you know many other women but my theory on the whole lothario thing was that he's a handsome dummy he's mm. kind of he's painted as a lothario like a casanova he's but got like, no sometimes I, to I think though, he's he? <laughs> well, <laughs> he's like the the guy in the bar that's good looking that the girls 
get drunk and end up with at yeah. the end of the night. In a, in a small because it's such a small well, town, yeah. exactly. He's gone through them through them all. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so twenty six, I think. It's yeah, nicely put, Matt. We we do see him in um in the in his first scene when when he and 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 Tip and you get to see Tip in all his glory in his first scene when he's, is uh in his sweatpants and denim jacket and bum bag and sunglasses like um there's a there's a lot of good things to say about shea wigan uh oh uh, so good yeah um and and of course that you know that he's the kind of he's the guy who's fronting so much and he's the clearly the kind of puff chest you know the fonzie the fonzie would be (laughs) wherever this is in north carolina (laughs) he looks like he stepped out of the outsiders yeah he looks like johnny bravo Like if his chest was a bit bigger, you would definitely look like Johnny Bravo from the from the. Well, what did you know him from? Because I, I I know him as the the preacher in True Detective One, which is still right. one of my favorite Boardwalk Empire. TV. Boardwalk, Boardwalk Empire. Boardwalk man. Empire. Uh, I know him from uh, Take Shelter. Mm. Uh, he's uh, Michael Shannon's either brother or co-worker. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, I yeah. can't remember. But yeah, he's excellent in that. And, he has a very good like small role as... in Wolf of Wall Street when he's the the. Um, he, he's driving the boat when uh, Leo needs oh, really? to get somewhere, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, a little bit of chop, a little bit of chop, it'd be fine." And then they end up crashing the boat. <laughs> <laughs> you know where else he's really good? Uh, another kind of indie, but not quite indie film. He's great uh, as the brother in Silver Linings Playbook. He's just, he's just, oh, he's, yeah. one, of those, oh, he's yeah. one of those actors who is in loads of stuff, and he's always great. You can give him the smallest role, the little bit of dialogue. One of the things that he does well in this, and Patrick, you can back me up in Boardwalk, it's when he's observing is when mm. he's the best. And in Boardwalk, he does yeah. a lot of it where yeah. he's looking from afar. Yeah. Everything is brewing and you can see him coiling up. And in Boardwalk, his character is is a bit of a, he starts off very, very simple and kind of naive and very privileged and he's watching from afar and he eventually mm-hmm. learns makes mistakes learns makes mistakes and um he ends up becoming one of your well certainly one of my favorite characters in that show it's like when him and shannon get together it's like this is great because they're both just on edge and it's, yes the whole time really you're waiting for him to explode aren't you and he does he's he's got that energy in this and and i, I guess Devlin, what i meant is that this might sound really really harsh mm-hmm. but i kind of wanted a ryan gosling in the Paul role, and that's okay. obviously me getting getting someone who's now an A-lister. But oh, uh, you can't do that in this kind of film. That's the instinct. I know how you feel, Gally. I'm I'm with you. Like the, the instinct is to go for what we what's familiar to us. Yeah, and uh, like lean on lean on that kind of crutch. And I did that a little bit too. But I I, I agree with you too, Patrick. That it's it's not right for this piece of work. No. But I had that feeling, the same feeling as Gally. It's like when we discussed in Almost Famous that he was up for the lead role. It is a Brad, oh, Pitt. Brad Pitt. Yeah. And you know, yeah. like it, it's too distracting. Like it, I don't think it works. Like, have you seen like crazy? The I've Yoke not, but um, I, I did want to, to, to see it because I'd, I'd heard it's very good. And it seems like a film that, that took a bit of an influence from this. Maybe. Yes. I, I, I've got it in my notes as a film that I think exists because of this film. And it, I, I loved it. I loved like crazy. I thought it was really good, really natural, really, really well done. And, and for me, that film works because they are lesser unknown actors that aren't too 
showy or big Hollywood stars. I don't think the film works like that. I know Ryan Gosling mm. at the time wouldn't have been a big showy Hollywood and, star. And that's what I was driving at. Well, I mean, it would have worked like half Nelson era. It would have yeah. kind of worked. In, in well, he's, he's had a couple. Like uh, Ryan Gosling had um, Lars and the Real Girl also starring oh, yeah. Yeah. Paul Schneider and also a, a version of, of this in the, what I think is, is brilliant, uh, Blue Valentine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 Which is brutal. Yeah. And I don't mean to be harsh on Paul Snyder. I think he's really good in George Washington. I just, um, I think you know what it is. Zoe Deschanel's so strong that he, he really does fall in the background in certain scenes. He just doesn't hold my attention. Um, and, and I just, I didn't buy him, like I said, as the Lothario. And I just, I couldn't, it was the one part of the film in performance wise that kind of wrangled with me and i just kind of thought oh, you know what i would have taken a young ryan gosling i guess uh they had they had a little moment with uh the so the the opening scene sets up the relationship really well and i think that the next scene where they go to the the diner very 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 quickly establishes the four guys in the group very well so you have uh, uh tip who spits in a bin and <laughs> then won't look at anyone in the eye and he's a little toothpick in and stuff and um uh, Bo, who says very little because he's just the other one, and uh, uh, Paul Schneider's little discussion with the waitress who you see later in the in the bar with him, mm-hmm. who's clearly an, uh, another of his conquests. And it's not like witty repartee, which which nobody has in this film, which I really like it for. Nobody is really snappy. Nobody ever knows what to say. Everyone's always just kind of fumbling around, uh, which I can probably be infuriating. I think. Well, I got stilted as a criticism, and then I just started to think, well, it's supposed to be that. Yeah, no, that's that's the intention. So I I can't critique it on on that level because it's clearly intentional. But yeah, that it, it is stilted. I think it can still be critiqued as a if you didn't enjoy it as an audience member. I think um because every decision is a decision, and you don't have to make a film like this. Um, yeah, I think if if the if the dialogue didn't didn't work for you, I think that's I think that's fair to say because you know it's still a decision that they made. Well, his performance is very odd, I think. I was wondering what the fuck he was doing half the time. <laughs> yeah, I think one takeaway for any ladies listening is that always beware of a man with a bullshit tribal sun tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> They're trouble. Oh. Or they were trouble, depending on their age now. So uh, I think I've, uh, I think I got a phone call to make to my older brother. <laughs> was that, era, that that cold water skinny dip cannonball was a bad move pre penis flesh <laughs> yeah. i think you go straight in the hot tub i think it's a wiser choice maybe he had a muscle strain and he needed to go cold and hot to, <laughs> to help them that scene was was a was a, a very deliberate choice they made um they they talked about this in the in the commentary they, that was really because they had so long to think about this film and all these guys would would, would chip in with ideas and stuff and uh, at one point they just said uh, i think it was um oh they, they even said who it was it was ben best who was later the co-creator of uh, eastbound and down who at this time was mm-hmm. just a friend of theirs um who worked on the film in some capacity i don't know as what um said imagine like if you were riding tiny, (laughs) not just the first time that this girl that you, that that you are totally into sees you. Imagine like what it would be like if the first time that she sees you, you are in, in, you know, in, in uh, George, George Costanza's. uh, I was in the pool. (laughs) 
<laughs> so it, it's it's intentional because he just didn't have the foresight to to think about it. He just yeah, exactly. He yeah, he was yeah. so nervous that he just kind of. Uh, his his instinct. You see, when he's like he's covering himself up, his little tighty one. Yeah. He's like you said, Patrick, in your opening line that he. Yeah. <laughs> he's, Don't you think he, though that he he's because <laughs> he's together with her, and I think he's aware that she wants him now. Yeah, I don't. I don't see why that doesn't give him confidence. You know why he doesn't strip off and he regrets. He says he regrets every every girl that that he touched. And I think what where it comes from he is doesn't to, want to corrupt it. Does yeah, he? basically, is, is how I sex for for him has never led to anything good. Mm. Um, and the the dialogue is is kind of stilted by design because these are people who are fumbling to towards trying to say something and they're trying to say it in the most heightened state you can be in which is when you really really like somebody new and and you you're terrified and and excited all at once and what i find really great about the the way they they perform the dialogue scenes together is that they can never actually communicate to each other about anything serious Throughout the whole film, mm. nobody actually, or very few people ever connect properly. Oh, I disagree with that, Devlin. The uncle, the uncle, oh, the is uncle the wise. Is, yeah, he's he's the, and he's you know he's got some great lines that I I walk away now and I've written them down as like yeah. oh, I'll use them later in life. He he does, but the, um so between like uh, Paul and Tip, when when Tip is seeing their their relationship progressing and he has to watch and he's clearly kind of caught up in it and probably you know, like it's because tip knows what he's like because tip feels like he's like that as well and so what he sees in paul is, is the things that he dislikes about himself and uh paul the only glimpse we get is the waitress that's the only uh, and the blonde girl who talks to noel at the at the campfire scene and, and kind of warm what's the flashback when there's a flashback and he says something about uh hating uh yeah she she uh so they're that they're on a the hood of a car and you, you don't you only yeah. come into it right at the end where you know she's laid back fully dressed on the on the hood of a car and then she and he's you know, standing up and she sits up and she just says i i i think i, she, I think she says i i i hate you and he turns around with like a I read quite like malevolent smiles. I think yeah, I hate you yeah. too. I, I hate you. Right. And I think that's, that's a little glimpse that you get of probably what he's been like up until this point. Well, that's also when it's played, it's tip, tip talking to, um, to Zoe Deschanel. Yes. Uh, and warning her about him. And that's when it flashes back. Yeah. And that's when the malevolent kind of thing, it, it adds another layer to it because he's warning her about it. About There's only two girls yeah. that we flash back to. That's the the flashback, and then we we see there's a blonde girl at the uh, at the the clearing in the woods uh, who talk, who leans over and says to Noel that um uh that he's yeah he's no good reiterating that he's a shit that everyone in town is mm -hmm. he's he's you know has gone through him and nobody has anything good to say about it. I'll um I'll say this, Debs, about the that everyone's bumbling. I know that. Uh, Danny McBride's character, Bustass or Tracy, yes, is um is is our sort of comic character who who in mo in a lot of these films you tend to get. He reminded me a little bit of Trent in Swingers, or okay, um, yeah. <laughs> or like uh you know Brody in Mallrats. You know these these they 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 sort of project themselves as like world wise. You know they've got loads of anecdotes about because uh, I think the opening his opening lines he's talking about um the butterfly effect, isn't he? 
which is, you know, you know that he would have just <laughs> he would have just grabbed that from, yeah, yeah. he just grabbed it yeah. from somewhere. He's talking he's nonsense to a group it. that aren't listening. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's quite funny, but I can't, I can't think everyone knows someone who's like that who just sort of tries to blag their way through um, through life. And I thought this was a really it's surprising that you tell me that Danny McBride was just like a non you know, non-actor, because I think he's really good in this. And it's mm. a, the perfect use for him, because I, as much as I love Eastbound and Down, I've always found him to be too much as a, as the, as the central figure. Like, I don't, I don't think he can carry a, a 90 minute. I just, I, I felt like I he was out he... of his depth with Alien Covenant. And that, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I don't think yeah. he belongs. You no, know, he, he doesn't. It's not just because it's Danny McBride that I just don't think he's, um, he's quite got those, uh, I just don't think he can hold it for ninety minutes, but he's great as a as a as a bit of energy brought in, and they use him well in this Tropic film. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, I, I I really like him in uh, the Righteous Gemstones, which is the last series that he co-created, which uh, uh, in which he stars as a a crooked preacher who's John Goodman's son. Oh, right. He is he is genuinely brilliant. Which David Gordon Green directs several episodes of. But one of the things that um, I really enjoyed watching it a second time, because the first time, again, spoilers, took me back where um, Noel ends up. But actually, second time watching it, the seeds are sown, aren't they? I think they have a they have a lovely scene in the woods when uh, Paul's talking to one of the one of the kids, and they have a connection over a musical instrument, and it seems yeah. quite frivolous, but. Noel is genuinely like engaged with him, even though he's talking shy. Doesn't he say something about like a rattle drum or something that he plays, or a, uh, I can't remember what it is. Mm-hmm. Not a steel drum, something like that. And she oh. says she, she can play. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Buster says he can play uh, slide. He can play uh, slide. <laughs> no, uh, pedals, I, yeah. I've been playing it a lot longer than you've been playing the trombone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's it. That's it. And yeah, then, no. and then later on, there's another scene where they're walking, and he kind of just says, "Like he's trying to position himself as number two. Yeah, he's like. <laughs> What would you, who was your number two? And I love the way he's like, you should just come around mine. I got a water bed. <laughs> <laughs> well, did that scene not remind you of Brent in the office where he says, uh, I thought we said not Tim. Strong male role model. <laughs> when he's in her house later, when Paul is turned up all dolled up. Yeah. I, I didn't understand how, uh, Tracy had, had kind of wheeled his way in i didn't really understand her motives with him because um, i've only watched this once i've only only watched it once for this because i wanted the kind of one viewing take on it to to listen to you guys so i'm interested to see how it's interesting what you say galley because yes the seeds were sown but i i did view deschanel's performance as not really interesting and almost kind of humoring him at the start Mm. And I was surprised when he was at her house post her having fucked someone else, Patrick, good name, um, yeah. in, a, in another location behind Paul's back. And Are you guys both assuming that, that um, Tracy and Noel were kind of seeing each other? Because I, I really just took it as that she'd, that she'd basically just sort of took him as uh, as, you know, it's another kind of it's a it's another little dagger for for Paul that like one of his friends. That's what I was kind of getting yeah. at more with why. No, why that's how I took it as well, Dublin. Knowing yeah. that he's his yeah. mate and she should, if she really feels that way, that she should be careful. But I can imagine there would be a certain type of audience member that would expect a certain type of film 
when you when you start off with a what's well, gonna be a love story about young love it's gonna be you know a story about how we all need it and sometimes we go through conflicts but in the end love will prevail that they could turn on zoe deschanel and be like oh i hate her um i never got that but i think the film I, I the reason why is because I was like thinking to myself, well, this is definitely from Paul's POV. Yes. So I, th- to me, I was like, well, we don't know Noel as well as we know Paul. And the one moment when she reveals her sort of not secret, but the the story about when she went fishing as a child hmm. was really the only moment that we got where the you know the we we get to see her sort of naked truth, so to speak, because everything else is is almost like a a facsimile of, of, of Paul's projection of her. Has, That's how I took yeah. it anyway. Well, she has a little moment earlier. Um, I think it's probably the, just the second scene with Paul and Noel, like after the time you see them in the kind of burnt out factory um, and they're in yet another burnt out factory, just kind of talking at night. Um, and they they have a little bit of a, a slightly deeper discussion about a sort of things about themselves and and there's a couple of things that i found interesting one was that um because she's come back to the town from from boarding school so she's not just been immersed in it it might be one of the first times that that paul's ever had anyone to talk to who doesn't already literally know everything he's ever done like uh mm-hmm. you know if, if every other girl has, has been other girls from the town they're all gonna they'll have gone to high school with them he would have possibly even gone to elementary school with them like um and she seems genuinely interested probably because she's been you know out outside of it and maybe coming back she seems you know she always wants to hang out with them when they're literally just sitting around on the on the dead leaves next to the riverbank just drinking beers and talking shit um so the the fact that she kind of still hangs out with with Bustas is probably just because he's funny <laughs> And the, I suppose he's friendly to her, isn't he? Yeah, as well? exactly. And he makes she might the effort. A friend of that person, especially yeah. male, because they may have all turned their back on her. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, it is kind of hilariously sleazy of him to to slide his way around there and make <laughs> and make some, make some cake and macaroni or whatever. I really did uh, kind of fall in love with the juxtaposition of industry and nature, which sounds awfully pretentious, but <laughs> I love the way I just, I really did love the way that we had nature blossoming versus the decaying industry. And I got a real sense of the, and this is probably me thinking about where I'm from, which is uh, Stoke on Trent, which is, you know, used to be a thriving industry of pottery I, I could empathize and, and identify with a lot of the, yeah. the visuals, despite never been, never going to North Carolina. And I thought that the way that Gordon Green and Tim Orr had, had kind of uh, set that as a backdrop, I thought was, uh, was quite, yeah, it's quite lovely. Well, one of my favorite moments, I thought the strongest one, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a Mogwai montage. It is, yeah. With uh, the un- undercranked fast motion Mogwai. and the, uh, the, the, there's a textile mill. And uh, did you just do a Gremlins thing? Then? <laughs> yeah. I was trying to concentrate on my point. Oh, right. I didn't want to laugh there; it'd make it worse, man. That, that might be a bit too subtle. Sorry about that. Sorry. I'll, I'll, I, go I love, again. I love I've, I've completely un- I've undercut you. Okay, I've undercut you. Start again. The uh, there's a Mogwai montage, and there's an <laughs> undercranked. Fa- <laughs> 
fast motion uh, kind of photography and there's a textile mill uh, cut from uh, cotton to clouds that I really liked. Yeah. Uh, I think that plays into what Gali was just saying. That's very inventive. And uh, I think you, you put this... It could could be, and you put this forward, Dev, before about the specificity of place, and uh, I, I got the feeling that that was one of your uh, top kind of points as far as the film was concerned, creating yes. a world that's believable and uh, a world that you can feel. Like people always talk about Tarkovsky as far as him doing things in a tactile way. Like you can you can feel things and smell things in his movies that. Uh, perhaps you can't in other people's. He does that really well. And I think Gordon Green uh, has a kind of a slice of that going yeah. on with uh, all the real girls. I, there was a, there's a line in it, and I'm going to misquote it, so Devlin, help me out, that, that agrees with that, Matt. And I, I agree with you completely when Paul is, it's like one of the most significant things to him is, is the work and the work placement he had in one of the factories. And mm. he talks about uh, something about, in the they air, the, yeah, they the, put the sprinklers on. Sprinklers, thank you. The sprinklers. And it rains in, inside, yeah. Yeah, and to try and like look at that as a significant kind of poetic point to his life is is really interesting. That that talk of like time and place in this film, and just to kind of add to it, like the way I quite like the way this film was shot, where everything looks quite autumnal and warm, and mm. the lighting is quite quite. Uh, yeah, warm. I've said it, it, warm. And there's a lot of exteriors in this film. A lot of it's all set outside amongst the nature or amongst the, the rubble and buildings. Um, I think the majority of it, there are interiors, of course, but it, I found it fascinating. And I knew something was problematic when we see Noelle at the party at the boathouse thing where she's at and the boys looking at her through the window and it's dreary and raining. And I thought that was mm-hmm. a deliberate warning yeah. as to something, uh, uh, a uh. pathetic fallacy if you will. The visual that told me was when Paul's leaning against her in the bowling alley and you're like, well, there you go. There's a character that has right. completely fallen. And I was just yeah. like, well, yeah. he's using her as a crutch. Yeah. Um, I would, I wouldn't get, and cause I knew I looked at my, looked at my watch mm-hmm. and I was like, well, we're an hour into this film. Danger lurks. And I think, doesn't he say, Oh, I won't go to it because I, I can't even remember his excuse, but I was like, go to the party. He has a really yeah. strange, and I, yeah. I can't remember the line. He has a really strange line that he says why he doesn't want to go to the lake. And, yeah. and I'm disappointed that I didn't dig this one out. It's really, really weird little delivery that he has with it as well. The idea of, um, exteriors, uh, really is one of the many, many things that struck a chord is whenever I go home to, to Darlow or whenever I was living at home as I was at the time when I watched mm-hmm. this film and, and kind of fell for it. And then after university, when me and Matt were both back and um, despite the fact that I too, like these characters was in my twenties, uh, I would still go drinking outdoors with mm-hmm. my friends. I would go to the riverbank or I'd go sit on some filthy hill. It didn't matter if it was raining. Like we would just be outdoors with, with, with cans. It's not that shit. dissimilar, is it? The, uh, the Croft, uh, the Croft bridge and yeah. that kind of area. It, it's reminiscent of that kind of final shot, that watercolor style um, closing shot of the movie um it, it's yeah it's all it's all very reminiscent of that yeah or we'd go to you know we go to the the Herworth grange community center just off the back of my estate and uh we'd go sit on the swings and i mean it would be a lot less wholesome than this you wouldn't be uh you know sitting around in, yeah in like uh a comfortable looking knitwear 
talking it's about the northern england version yeah it wasn't like you know the, <laughs> him sitting there going like strong as a coat fast as a bird or whatever it is that he's doing <laughs> no, nothing was that interesting we were mostly saying horrible things because we were terrible yeah. terrible disgusting Boys. Yeah, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be drinking what? old style beer. You'd be drinking White Lightning. Uh, we were on uh, we were on my mate Hacker's dad's uh, uh, cans of Fosters. <laughs> Hacker's dad's Fosters. We used to go raid the garage. Oh my god! <laughs> Sorry, Andy. I found this thing with like broken cars everywhere. Everyone is yes. fixing things constantly. It's like we're, we're in a we're in a metaphor for that. I, I quite like that. Um, I'm not sure why he's, he's racing in a Fiat Punto or whatever it was, but that was that was quite. Oh, cool. is his oh, I found that quite amusing. His, his <laughs> yeah. relationship with the car is the most amusing thing in the film. Yeah. When, he, yeah. when he backs her car up into another car, when he yeah. runs over his mum's <laughs> flowers, <laughs> and because I own a Fiat Panda, so when he was racing in that car, I was like, "That's the equivalent ah. of me turning up to Formula One in my, <laughs> in my trusty Panda." Yeah, putting mothballs in the tank to make it go faster. <laughs> <laughs> Did anyone else find it weird though that they're just stood in the middle of a bowling alley? Yes, that's, that's, that's just a cool thing, right, for the director? Yeah, yeah. I, I wrote down Patrick a, like indie tropes, and, and yeah, that to me yeah. felt like a right the Dan- I need Buffalo sixty six. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was a, yeah, exactly, Matt. It was a Buffalo sixty six moment, and I think it was partly because I'd seen that film recently. Um, but yeah, I just put it down as kind of the certain. That's why Garden State is the worst example because there's loads of them. Basically, every scene yeah, is like, very oh, cutesy. how do I mm-hmm. how do I incorporate the background into the um, yeah the the emotional core of the scene? And and whereas that was the yeah. one scene which felt like it was manufactured. Whereas all those outdoor scenes, despite looking yeah. almost like a Gillette advert at times, it still felt organic. And one of the things that I found really interesting in doing the research is I listened to a Q and A. With David Gordon Green, who he was talking about making George Washington, and um, he struck he, well. He struck me then as a director who was very much a, a kind of a, a big supporter of just get the pickups. If you see something that you think mm. looks kind of cool or nice, shoot it. You might use it, and they don't. They don't. They don't shower it in this film. There isn't loads of Terence Malick. Let's just cut to River naturally flowing but there's just enough to kind of give you a sense of almost dreamlike lucid kind of atmosphere and, and I, I i rung devlin a couple of days ago and said how strange it was you know i kept my sandwiches to myself but i just said it felt very odd to watch this film and i felt like i was more i felt like i was in a dream more in all the real girls than i did rewatching inception yeah. uh, not that long ago huh. And it's all about it's all about atmosphere, isn't it? It's about music, visuals, well, and and just editing as well. And I just felt like I was the in editing, especially, yeah, the way that um, a scene will sweep into the next, and it's it's um, it's like the idea of I, I don't know how I got here, I don't know how mm-hmm. I got into this part of the scene. the The opening of the film is great, the way it just opens up from black and and you fade in, but um, the uh, the rest of the film has this has this great way of just kind of like yeah weaving in and out of moments in a really kind of interesting way that um yeah you yeah you you drift you drift around it's as as much memory as it is dream it's it's really interesting i think there is something in that with the bowling alley bit as well because because it's a little bit of a stage surreal thing i wonder if that is 
a happy memory for the character Paul and we're kind of viewing it as he remembers it. But also I quite like that there's a juxtaposition with for Noelle with her time, this picture picturesque and perfect and dancy and sweet with Paul. And then when she's later at the bowling alley with Tracy, it's clumsy and different and just a bit static. I, what I was going to do, I was going to slag off dissolves. I've been holding back on this. I heard this thing from uh, Michael Cimino, who directed The Deer Hunter. And he, he thinks you can cut from anything to anything. And uh, there's absolutely no need for a, for a dissolve. But, you know, I've kind of revised it a bit. I mean, it, I was very snobby about them for, for a long time. And I think if they use stylistically, I mean, they usually used to suggest the passage of time as far as film grammar is concerned. But I, I've got a real issue with dissolves. And almost every pod we've, we've, podcast we've been on, I've, I've wanted to say it, but I've, I haven't fully kind of got my head around it. But my favourite cuts ever are just straight cuts. You know, Lawrence of Arabia uh, yeah. cutting to, you know, the, the match blown out. 2001, the bone and the spacecraft. Uh, Deer Hunter, which is, it was on the commentary to the Deer Hunter. They actually cut from... Uh, you know, this, this town to, to the midst of Vietnam, just in one cut and like the firebombing of a, a certain area. Matt, can I, can I guess, can I, can I put words in your mouth? I yeah, bet you on. love the cut from, uh, Demolition Man. Ooh, <laughs> what I would do for some action. Cut, Simon Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, well, they didn't dissolve it. And the other one I really like is, uh, The Graduate where he, he jumps uh, onto the lilo, like the inflatable, but he's also jumping onto Mrs. Robinson, and it's it's like the, the <laughs> continuing of the, of the of the motion there. So I think anything can be done with a single cut, and it's like pure. It feels very pure, but th- this had a lot of dissolves. And the other thing that I hated was I, I watched um, Perfect Storm the other night. You can tell they shot and shot and shot, and none of it cut, and they just had to dissolve everything together. Just right. to make it work in, in in the beginning, at least, as far as the the opening sequence is concerned. But anyway, I just wanted to go on about that. Never There's mind. a great cut in Interstellar, Matt, as well, when he leaves the cornfield and it cuts to the the rocket taking off. In Interstellar, yeah, I really like yeah. that edit. Like, sure. it's a really good example of what you're talking about. One of the one of the the most impactful scenes for me, and it's partly down to just I don't know. I guess I'm a male of a certain age, but Zoe Deschanel is some something of a dream girl Zoe. for most. <laughs> Thank you very much, Zoe. Um, can I just call her Deschanel? <laughs> Done. Um, I honestly, when she the, the the whole start and end of that scene is just wonderful. You know, with them kind of going into this this space where we think they're going to consummate their relationship, and then. There's that playful bit with the pillows, like, oh, I do want a pillow fight. And then all of a sudden it just turns. And what I love about not just her performance, because she's great, is the way that they shoot it. We get right in close on, on Paul. The angle that they choose for Deschanel, it's almost like she's looking up and we're down on her. And um, I don't know about you guys, but... Uh, wasn't just a lump in my throat. Uh, a tear ran down my eyes on the on the first watch. I was I was generally choked up by just the story that she told and the way that she delivered it. It was phenomenal. Yeah, I really love the way that um, the way that scene plays out as well. When they turn up to the motel and and you know Paul is again like super kind of awkward and nervous and picks up the receiver on the phone for no reason at all and puts it back down. Um, which is 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 interesting, and and the way that you know, obviously we we mentioned that later on he he jumps into the the 
the lake instead of joining her in the hot tub because you know she's clearly trying to kind of seduce him physically and 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 they end up not and the way the scene ends is um them having built a blanket and pillow fort on the bed in the motel we've seen paul's vulnerability throughout up to this point and with noelle we haven't really we haven't really accessed it and then for her to kind of just reveal all and she's fraught with like guilt and grief and I think you forget, don't you? Because, you know, Patrick, you said, you know, she was in Elf the same year. God, what a great dramatic actress she is, not just a comedic actress. Uh, I was, I was blown away by that scene. I thought it was phenomenal. Well, I, I was first aware of her in the Offspring video for She's Got Issues. Do you oh, remember yeah. that? It was yeah, around yeah. the <laughs> Americana era. Oh my gosh. Uh, I didn't uh, realize that was her. And that is a, yeah. that is a deep cut, Matt. Yeah. She was very striking even back then. And I didn't know who she was. Obviously, I had to find out later but i'm a big fan of her in almost famous yeah. and her music with she and him with uh matt ward aka m ward uh which is all really you know sunshiny um very upbeat happy stuff uh, and i even watched all of new girl from beginning to end mm-hmm. which was largely saved comedically i think by the nick miller character played by jake johnson that i, I really mm-hmm. kind of enjoyed but yeah elf yes man 500 Days of Summer and Our Idiot Brother was another one I, I really liked her in. My favorite moment in this one was uh, the Kiss Me on the Neck part. It's kind of an almost silent delivery that's very genuine and and uh, and real. She she kind of, the film and Zoe kind of straddle that line between twee and authentically hmm. innocent. And they, they it, it does it quite well. Um, certainly before you end up judging her for, for what happens later in the movie. Yeah. I know G- Gally touched on it earlier, but I, I did, I did dislike her a little bit. I have to be honest, but, uh, I also disliked him. So, uh, it, <laughs> You're glad it, it le- leveled out time. quite nicely. Yeah. You, you mentioned a film there though, that I think has parallels to this, which is 500 days of summer with a problematic relationship where what one mm. person misunderstands the relationship over, over the other or yeah. in five inch days of summer and, and kind of heartbreaking way for one of them, Gordon Levitt. And, um, but in here it's, I was trying, I tried to connect it a little bit with that and whether she misunderstood the relationship and his almost unwillingness to, um, to go the whole way that, yeah. you know, she has a boarding school background with her frustration and her, her um, hormones and, you know, adolescence that just led her to make decisions that she did. But I think, I think Deschanel's very good in this film. I, she yeah. does straddle that line finally in a lot of films, like in Yes Man, but I, there's something very cinematic about her and very mm. endearing to watch. She has certainly has a presence. In the eyes, Patrick. It's in the eyes. Yeah. I think eyes. you're right. Yeah. Um, I think it's sometimes in the delivery though, because she has a very still face. Even when she's smiling, you don't realize she's cracked a smile because she's very subtle with it. And she, I think she picks her emotions very well in her performance. Um, and you know, to actually see her break down when she tells them the fishing stories, I, I don't know whether I've seen Deschanel do that before in a, in a film or since because there's, there's a real emotion and a real heartache in that scene that did get me as well. Um, I was just gripped by the storytelling in that scene, really. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. if we go into it now, like later when uh, that scene where 
And it's, it's such a, it's really interesting scene when she tells him that she slept with somebody else because Schneider, we, at the beginning of the scene, he, he definitely has physically more confidence about him and his mm. approach to her. He leads in to kiss her and she's standoffish and, uh, she just, you know, it's all, they're both doing really it's good so things. Uncomfortable the way he, he puts his mm. arm around her and then when yeah, it's clear yeah. that there's something that's happened, he pulls his arm away and he kind of, he, he, he like jerks Slowly. it really, really hard away from her after he's, like his elbow touches hers and he's like yanks it yeah. away. It, yeah. it almost looks violent. It's the words he says though, like he doesn't recognize her, you're a stranger. Yeah. And it, I, I really felt something in that dialogue in that film. It, it, in, excuse me, in that scene, because in, in the whole film, sometimes not all the dialogue works for me. I think it's a little too uh, weird and wonderful that people wouldn't There's say. There's a lot of prophetic lines in there. Again, in yeah, my, in my yeah. little subsection of indie tropes, there's one in particular where they're on top of, or they're on the a hillside, and um, it reminded me a lot of Sophia in Vanilla Sky when she says something like, You've ten seconds to live, and yeah. I was like, uh, mm-hmm. "In if someone yeah. else had said that line, I would have been like, oh, though we're in manic pixie dream girl territory here.' But actually, she just about gets away with it. But you can see the walls shaking a touch. Um, but it is is that there's a couple like that, Patrick, and and the uncle's got a few of them. But be, but because the uncle is so goddamn earnest. <laughs> I bought every I bought every line. I think some of it rings true, and then th- there was a line that I I really didn't like about. I, I had a dream last night. You were growing a garden on a trampoline, and I was so happy that I invented peanut butter. Like I, yeah. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've found that like really cloying, and uh, and but then just to just to balance it out, there was another one that I really liked. Hey, I want to dance, but. Uh, I don't want you to watch that part in the bowling alley. It has absolutely no right to work on paper, but it kind of plays. I think it, it kind of fits. So I agree with Gally there. I, th- I think it's hit and miss, but yeah. some of them are, are, are too far for me, a bit beyond. <laughs> I, I do like that when he says to uh, go grow your hair back. Put your because, fucking hair back on and come yeah. on back. Yeah, because yeah. when he sees them the first time, he says, no, it's nice, and you can tell he's lying. Yeah. And now he, he's able to we just He's just kind of grabbing it at, at the ends of it, like, where did it all go? And of course, yeah, it's not the it's hair a, at that point. It's a, it's something he can't ever get back at that yeah. point. It's just disappeared forever. And uh, yeah, the hair's just representative of, of that. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but apparently there's been an, a big upsurge in men uh, sort of confessing sins of the past of ex-partners and apologising. So the scene when he's in the bar... This is all during lockdown. Like people have just gotten all self-reflective and gone, actually, you know what? I think I might have been a bit of a bastard back then. And there's um there's a bit in the bar when he's talking to the girl and he's he's trying to apologise. I, I think I he is really, trying to be, really he's, love he's being, that scene. She says he's too stupid to. Uh, he's, I think he's yeah. being sincere, but it's it's like sincere under the guise of being pissed, yeah. which feels insincere. Yeah. And uh, it's like, well, you can't mm. you can't take it back years later or however long it's been. And I do like her put down, which is "You'll be here forever." How, do you, how does that make you feel? The way she sits down next to him, and she's she's already kind of contemptuous of him, and then as she sits, her earring falls out, and he points to it, mm-hmm. and you can just see that she's furious that she is now going to have to lean down and pick something up, and that she's made like a little like a little mistake, 
and he gets to see it and then um i i don't know whether that adds to just like how kind of vitriolic she is towards him and and, and I, I, his his response to being like verbally dressed down in a way that he completely deserves is to just like debase himself further and just cry about some kind of odd memory that he has i kind of wish we'd we'd learned a bit more about his past with girls and how how it didn't work or what happened because it would have given him a learning curve structure to his character you know what what has he learned from past relationships did he was he looking was he just purely after sex or yeah what, what was his motivation in the past? I, I would have liked a little bit more of that i think we get that patchwork with his relationship with his mother though do we not yeah. just that, that that's how i that's how i took that relationship was his his one bit of if you were to try and put this into a kind of an arc and a normal structure would be his relationship with his mother which you know mm-hmm. he completely abandons for the most of it and then when he needs her the most she's there for him and he kind of yeah. acknowledges that he has not been there for her we should um, mention her quickly as well yeah we should Clarkson, shouldn't well, we? And she was having in like an amazing breakthrough like this was a, like such a huge year for her apparently she had uh, along with this she had three other films all in sundance film festival all in 2003 one of which was pieces of april which she won a bunch of awards for deservedly wow. she is great she was always my favorite thing about um six feet under whenever she popped up as well yeah yeah so gents all the real <laughs> girls uh will go around the table uh so final thoughts I- i'll start with you matt final thoughts on all the real girls and would you recommend it to our listeners presumably releasing it on valentine's day was kind of a sick joke i, I don't know really know why <laughs> they did that i don't know how many budding relationships would quite survive the film but um, I, I feel like it's representative of the messiness and the dysfunctional, non-communicative nature of early relationships and first loves. And unfortunately for me, it kind of translated into a messy, dysfunctional, uncommunicative film in many ways. It was kind of oddly constructed, but very humanly constructed. I liked that it was clearly made by people and not a system. And... I like that it didn't follow typical Hollywood conventions, although I have to confess to being a bit of a closet Garden State fan, even though you're all slagging me <laughs> off. But uh, I have a framed Garden State poster in my in my childhood bedroom Nerd. at home. So there you go. But I, I would I would say that this film is, is, isn't as funny as Garden State. I think Garden State's a funnier film than all the real girls. So there you go. And as a film lover, I, I felt like this was somewhat of a palate cleanse in a, in a really cool way because it was clearly designed by someone who's entirely tired of the regiment and the structure and natural order of, of cinema. He's just clearly sick of it. And uh, on paper, I'm all for it. But uh, I do appreciate Green's effort to to throw out the rule book, you know, Guilty, get a new rule book. <laughs> Brent mused. And and he's going to tell a story his way. And uh, it just wasn't quite for me. It didn't quite click. Um, I like a bit more optimism in my love stories, particularly as I get a bit older, I think. And uh, But I accept all of the, the harsh realities that the film depicts. Um, and, you know, I've, I've lived some of them. You know, as far as be, it being biographical, when I said it before, I'm not the Lothario in the situation. <laughs> I'm, I'm an amalgam of other kind of characters, I think. But um, 
I, I could connect it to my personal life and I, it, it was quite affecting on that level. Uh, at best, I think it's a very palpable world and it's originally imagined and well created using really subtle and effective, uh, techniques. Uh, I think the realism of it is really appreciated. Um, I, but the people, a lot of people were talking about the idea of it being very aesthetic, you know, uh, like having no indulgence. And I, I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing when it comes to cinema. I, I also don't really think it's true with this film because I think the performances are quite indulgent, but, you know, photographically, I don't think it's, it's particularly indulgent. Uh, um, maybe it's my Scorsese fried mind, but I wanted the camera to move a little bit more. And um, I, I'm, I'm very happy with indulgence if it's in color and camera and, performance and theme and story so i i guess that that's okay like maybe my tastes are a bit too commercial um i felt like it was kind of a joke that i i wasn't in on in a way and that kind of aggravated me a little bit uh at, at intervals i think it rang true and uh and some of it i just found maddeningly inarticulate and um it, it didn't really make me laugh a lot um, I think there's power in it, but it's quite a, a self-destructive power in a way. It left me with a kind of weird, unsorted feeling at the end of it. And I, I do think it's unconventional and, and admirable technically, but it didn't really say anything warm to me. Um, I, I wish I cared about the characters a little bit more. And I, I think when it comes down to it, you can do these narrative cartwheels and you can subvert things, but if you don't give me something and someone to care about and get me invested, you know, uh, it, it's just not going to happen. You know, I'm quite an easy target when it comes to that stuff, but with this one, it just wasn't to be. So there, there was many things to, to like about it, but also I, I had some some issues with it too. So uh, I'll I'll pass over to Patrick. How about you, Patrick? I, I have a lot of very similar uh, feelings as you do, Matt. Um I said it before, I only wanted to watch it once because I wanted to have that one take on it uh, rather than a revisit because I'd never seen it before. So I wanted that fresh perspective. And I I almost immediately agreed with you, you guys saying you've forgotten the film having seen it years ago because I feel like I'll do the same soon. I'm sorry to be so damning. And I don't feel as guilty as Matt does, Devlin, because you hate the films that I recommend to you. Because <laughs> <laughs> Um, there, there are things I liked in the film. There are things I didn't like in the film. I found myself trailing off a little bit. And Matt, I think you hit the nail on the head that I, I needed people that I liked. Or while he wasn't on screen, I needed more tip or more uncle. And I needed more characters to get a bit of bite into because I stopped really caring about Paul and Noel, uh, even kind of before uh, the bowling only scene with some nice photography there and I, I was kind of latching onto bits of interest but bits weren't enough for me throughout it wasn't a whole a whole helping a whole serving so to speak um i really like the way the film shot and looks and the, the sentiment and idea behind it i did feel that I may have been more responsive to this film had I watched it when I was 18 or 21, when I was younger, because these are the kind of films I really liked at uni that I liked feeling upset and 
to join in with the film's melancholy and uh, tone that would doesn't have to be uplifting. But I sometimes liked sitting at uni watching a film that was going to bring me down because I quite enjoyed that feeling and that the film could do that. Um, and now, having watched it, um, it just it just didn't hold me the whole way. The bits of the dialogue we spoke about that didn't work for me and were a bit too, um, I don't know, I, I idealised and grand that and poetic that didn't need to be because they jarred with the realism that the film had set up at the beginning and the, the nicer scenes that I hold on to, like a fishing tale and uh, the confession. I, I really got into those scenes and I felt an emotional response. So that's, that's, a, that's a good thing. I, I was glad that it made me feel that way despite losing a bit of interest but i didn't really like paul i didn't i don't i'm not really into schneider's performance at the beginning of the film solely uh, you know and I'm, i understand why they didn't start with the dog by the water because who the fuck talks to their dog like that and um i don't yeah i didn't get that at all and when he tells the story of the birds it sometimes it i don't know it just irks me a little bit sometimes um, I do think Zoe's very, very good in this film. I, I'd like to have seen a bit more Wiggum because I think Shea's great and he, he's fascinating, uh, as, as an actor to watch his face anyway. Um, I, I do though see promise in Green's direction as his like second feature. Uh, you can, I could see why he was uh, a hot prospect at the time and, I like, I always love the idea of a director kind of revisiting where he's from and a history and maybe something autobiographical and ideas that way. I like the technical aspect of this film, what you've told us, Dev, that all the workshopping, that's all really cool. But it didn't fully, I I, I just didn't fully buy into it. Uh, Sometimes things were too jarring every now and then that took me out. Um, yeah, I, I, but that said, there, there are things in I did like. Um, Gally, over to you, please. Uh, I think. Well, I'm a bit of a mixture of of both of you. Uh, I'm I'm totally with uh, with Matt. This is this this type of film is is way out of my comfort zone. I, I tend to gravitate towards genre films. And my indie collection is made up of the of sort of the most popular films of the past twenty years. So um, they're not quite indie films anymore. Um, I remember going to many a Leeds Film Festival with Patrick and you, Devs, and we saw versions of All the Real Girls done very badly with tedious pseudo-philosophical dialogue uh, and all the grand gestures that that, that get thrown in there in search of some form of artistic merit. Um, I would say top tier of this type of film is the uh, the Before trilogy by Richard Linklater, um, and I would suggest that the types of films we saw at Leeds Festival are the pits. And this one sits somewhere in the middle for me. Um, I, I, t- I found myself getting immersed in the atmosphere and the lyrical nature of the film. So all the things that I would normally wrangle me like, well, why has this happened at 30 minutes? And why has this character not really got an arc? And, and why don't we have any discernible characters that we can, that we can sort of follow and, and love and want to see do well? Um, that all kind of fell by the wayside because, um, yeah, it, it was like, like I said, it was like listening to a piece of music, an album, um, as opposed to watching a film. You could argue that's a good or a bad thing. The thing that it did do for me is it, 
it really put me in a self-reflective mood on the first watch. I started thinking about like Stoke-on-Trent and friends and people that were important to me 20 years ago that I've lost connection with. I don't know whether that was the film's intention, but that's the kind of mood it got me in. Um, so for that, I'm going to recommend it because I think if you can, if it can elicit that out of me, then it's, it's it must be worthy of, uh, of of seeking out. The one thing I would say, and maybe maybe instead of you summarising, Devs, because I think we all know where you stand. As far as I like a recommend, when would you watch this? Because it's not a Friday night film. I don't think it's a Saturday night film. I watched it on a Monday. Uh, I'm not saying it's a Monday night film, but when when would if you watch it on Valentine's Day, time? <laughs> yeah, like uh, honestly, that was the one thing I couldn't. You know, normally with our recommendations, you know, I tend to t- t- like say, ah, oh, yeah, watch it with a beer with friends, or you know, mm. you try and, and and give it the right chance. I had that problem as well. Who do you recommend it to? I don't know, well. unless it's Devlin twenty well, years ago. Up, I don't like, know. You like Garden State, and Matt, I'm a closet Garden State fan. I haven't seen it. Yet. Thank you, Patrick. Oh but I like 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 Crazy and things like Lost in Translation and those films. These this has an audience certainly, so you can definitely recommend it to people who, you know, as an alternative romantic film that doesn't have the Hollywood ending. I I recommend it for that because I I quite like that storytelling. I quite like that films don't have to be happy, happy, all saccharine, and where this has the sweet narrative in it and times and the idea of love and love lost and regret about that. I I kind of, I'm glad the film did that. I'm glad it didn't have a resolve at the end. I'm glad they kind of almost hated each other at the end as well. Totally, totally understand where you're all coming from. Um, Matt, like you were saying, that you can tell that it's made by people. And, and not a system, which, which I totally get. And Gally, you said there reminds you of like a, like listening to an album. I, that is exactly how I see it. I see it as like, um, the, the guys who collaborated on, on making this film. And the thing is, it is guys. That is, that is one thing that we must say that even though this is a film which deals with, with romance and with the, with the, with, you know, um, a a guy and a girl getting together and, and then it all falling apart. I, it's it's kind of shamelessly unapologetically from the from the kind of wounded male soft boy perspective which uh is probably why it appealed to me as a 19 year old as much as it did it was um i i i really do think that it's 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 like a band it's like um the the sequence that that i i come back to is the one that you mentioned matt previously which is that that fantastic mogwai montage yeah. where they play the entire uh, like a huge portion of the mogwai fear satan um remix um the my music taste and david gordon green's music taste especially at that, that age and that era really overlap quite a lot uh and he says that he wrote the film to music and that he uh edited the film and he put pieces of music and throughout his career he's used a bunch of of great pieces there's a there's some silver mount zion in in snow angels during a really pivotal scene there's a there's even a gag like he kind of takes the piss out of it later in um in pineapple express when um seth rogan is talking to his girlfriend about how she'll go off to college and start listening to godspeed you black emperor <laughs> he's got like a kind of like a little bit of disgust in his voice and i was yeah. exactly the sort of person that would sit around and listen to the full both discs of a full Godspeed You Black Emperor album on my own as a as an entertainment and uh, when you say indulgence it's, it's hugely indulgent it's um it's 
it's a breakup album and mm. you have to be in a very very particular mood for a breakup album um uh, not to say that you have to be heartbroken but uh it does take you back and it seems that everyone it, it, even if we had issues with with certain aspects of it and i think maybe i'm a little blinded to them because i i did watch the film at, at 19 and stuck with it throughout all of the you know the 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 university years and all of the upheaval that has and, and it was a film that i went back to uh, a lot and it's it's now it is hard now to to think like how many people i would just say uh you know to people in their mid 30s like oh, you really need to check this film out. i don't know whether it would hit home i mean patrick it seems like like you said that it would have been something that you would have preferred to see at a more maybe a more um impressionable age yeah i thought mm-hmm. i but like you guys i did recognize time and place in my life where yeah i might have yeah. turned to this film to feel something um, and um i recognize it from my my younger years shall we say yeah it's it's you know it is it's it's, nice kind of, it's uh it, it's a film that's kind of fumbling to articulate something and like all the characters it it sort of lashes out in a few directions and it, and it, it paints itself in all these different shades. And it is, it's like, um, like instrumental music, like a lot of post-rock or, or, or music like that explosions in the sky and, uh, uh, and, and Le Bradford and all these bands that, you know, David Gordon Green would write to and that I would listen to. And I think I, that was why I kind of locked into the rhythms of it quite easily because it was, it was clearly written alongside things that I already liked. And all of those things I openly and uh, admit are, are hugely self-indulgent, but every now and then you've just got to indulge yourself, especially, uh, you know, with, so yeah, uh, watch mm-hmm. it on a, a late night on a midweek when you should have gone to bed because you've got to go to work, but you feel a bit <laughs> sad. That's when you watch it. You watch it. You watch it when you shouldn't. <laughs> uh, as far as all the real girls, where you can source it, um, bit of a bit of a mixed bag on this one. Um, available to purchase a digital copy on Amazon, but at a pretty extortionate seven ninety nine in the UK. Um, I'm hoping it's less uh, in the US uh, for our US listeners. Um, not on Netflix, uh, and unfortunately not on any of the streaming sites. But to purchase, you can get it on Google Play um, and YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, but not not as as expensive. So really, it's a you know you're gonna have to seek out the DVD or the Criterion. I don't know whether that. they actually did. Uh, I know that you can get George Washington on the Criterion collection. Whether or not you can get that on the uh, uh, Region Two, I don't know. Certainly, those lucky bastards in Region One can have it. Um, all the real girls. I don't. I, I I don't think there has been a Blu-ray release of any description. Which is a shame. The DVD is 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 decent. It has a, a commentary by Paul Schneider and David Gordon Green, and uh, a short kind of documentary about the origin of the film. But um, yeah, it's uh, you would have to put a bit of effort in to seek it out. Well, here is the first time that instead of a consensus pick, nor I, nor Devlin, nor Patrick know what what our South Korean legend is going to pick. So, Matt, here's your chance for a throwback. I pass you the conch. What are we going to watch next? <laughs> I've got two in front of me. I didn't know which one it was going to be until now. So stop your grinning and drop your linen. We're going to set down on LV426 and dissect James Cameron's 1986 sci-fi action horror sequel, Aliens. 
How very oh, interesting. Yes. Very. And it's great how we're skipping the first one, just like I did as a child. <laughs> watch the second one hey, first, uh, then watch the first one. Yeah. Hey, Matt, you ever been mistaken for a man? <laughs> no, have you? I look forward to it. We're going to have to do all of them then, aren't we? It's as simple as that. I, so. I don't know how. In the wrong order. Yeah, let's do them in a weird order. Let's do, yeah. uh, let's do Aliens, <laughs> and then let's go straight to Covenant so we can talk about Dynamite Bride. And then <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Alien vs. Predator before that one. Oh, no. Are we counting Alien vs. Predator? I mean, I suppose we would for giggles, but we could, the fuck are you going to get, we could try, get any recommend? We could try and watch Requiem if you can see oh. it. <laughs> That's a joke because it's too dark. Uh, can I do just a quick shout out, please? Um, there's a new podcast that uh, I'm quite enjoying at the minute from one of my friends. His name's Al. Uh, he's doing a podcast called Seen the Sequel, which is quite an interesting take on films where they're looking at films that maybe you uh, shouldn't have, but you, maybe you wish did have a sequel in the past, and they discuss what would what that sequel would entail and involve, uh, including casting decisions and how they'd pitch it to Hollywood. It's very amusing. I, I went with Al on um, the new Kingsman film, which has been put back, sadly, with, with these times, but I'm um, looking forward to seeing that. And um, they're on Twitter at seeing the sequel and on, on your uh, usual podcast thing, seeing the sequel. They've got a great episode on Truman Show and the Goonies. So just a quick shout out there. Thank you very much. Nice. No, no, that's great. Um, well, I tell you what, Patrick, we'll, uh, we'll put them in the show notes. So if anyone wants to get a direct link t- to that show, um, we'll do that. No, fantastic. Right. Well, gents, I think we'll say, our go- we'll say our goodbyes, won't we? Matt, Matt needs to go to bed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, so I will, I will not have any funny lines because we've ascertained that there aren't many in the film. Uh, so all I'll say is, uh, once bitten, twice shy. It's, uh, it's Gally in Glasgow signing out. Take care, everybody. I heard he climbed a tree to kick a dude's ass. There you go. I like that one. It's definitely in London. I'm off to tend to my ladybug collection. It's Matt in South Korea. And I'm thinking about growing a beard. It's Patrick in London. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Check your back.